and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End, where we are reading through the scriptures together from Genesis to Revelation. I'm so glad you're joining us today as we are jumping in to Exodus 16 through 20. Let's remind ourselves where we were last time. In the last section we read, we saw the Israelites finally being rescued from the hand of the Egyptians. God rescued them from slavery. But there is still a long road ahead for the Israelites before they make it to the promised land. So today as we read, we are going to be continuing their journey as God leads them through Moses and helps them build this new community, this new life in freedom. So grab your Bible if you can, or just listen along as we start with Exodus 16, Manna and Quail from Heaven. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the fifteenth day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. So pause there because we hear the Israelites complaining. And I said that that was going to be a theme throughout this tale, this journey. Track how their attitudes shift and change and go back and forth. Ask yourself why they might be feeling this way. Ask yourself who they're putting their trust in when they complain. What is the state of their heart? Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, By evening, you will realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaints, which are against him, not against us. What have we done that you should complain about us? Then Moses added, The Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning. For he has heard all your complaints against him. What have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. So pause and ask yourself, why are Moses and Aaron saying that the Israelites' complaints are against the Lord and not Moses? Because it says in verse 2 that the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron. But Moses is saying, your complaints are against the Lord, not us. What does this show about the Israelites and their understanding of God and who he is? How do you think that will change? Or do you think that that will change as time goes on and they begin to know the Lord more closely? Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Announce this to the entire community of Israel. Present yourselves before the Lord. 
for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness. There they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp, and the next morning the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is this? they asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, It is the food the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some only a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. Then Moses told them, Do not keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen, and kept some of it until the morning. But by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Moses was very angry with them. After this the people gathered the food morning by morning, each family according to its need, and as the sun became hot, the flakes they had not picked up melted and disappeared. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts, for each person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. He told them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day, set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. So pause here because this is the first time we have a mention of the Sabbath. Why do you think God gave the Sabbath to the Israelites? Why do you think it was important to God that the Israelites rest? Where have we seen God rest before? How important do you think rest is in our life today? Verse 24. So they put some aside until morning, just as Moses had commanded. And in the morning, the leftover food was wholesome and good, without maggots or odor. Moses said, Eat this food today, for today is a Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather the food for six days, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. Some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. The Lord asked Moses, How long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day so there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must stay in your place. Do not go out and pick up food on the seventh day. So the people did not gather any food on the seventh day. So pause there because we have God explaining the Sabbath a little bit and you can reflect on what God says about 
the Sabbath and rest. But I also want you to reflect on how God provides. How did God provide for the Israelites? And then how does God provide for you today? Verse 31. The Israelites called the food manna. It was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like honey wafers. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Fill a two-quart container with manna to preserve it for your descendants. Then later generations will be able to see the food I gave you in the wilderness when I set you free from Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Get a jar and fill it with two quarts of manna. Then put it in a sacred place before the Lord to preserve it for all future generations. Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He eventually placed it in the Ark of the Covenant, in front of the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. So the people of Israel ate manna for forty years until they arrived at the land where they would settle. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. The container used to measure the manna was an amr, which was one-tenth of an ephah. It held about two quarts. So that's the end of Exodus 16, and we're going to transition right in to Exodus 17, Water from the Rock. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet. Moses replied, Why are you complaining against me, and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. So pause here, and we see another example of the Israelites complaining against Moses and the Lord. When the Israelites have a problem, how do they handle it? Are they praying to God or are they complaining? And then I also want you to ask yourself, do you think God will be with them even though they're complaining? Do you think God will provide for them despite their complaints against God? Verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord here with us or not? The next section is Israel defeats the Amalekites. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, Choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. 
Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arm soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hand. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, They have raised their fist against the Lord's throne, so now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. So pause there and think about the picture of Aaron and Hur holding up Moses' arms. What does that symbolize? And how can we listen to that story and apply that to our own lives now as we interact with the body of Christ? And then what did Moses do after the victory? How did he show reverence to the Lord and recognize that God was a part of that victory? Exodus 18, Jethro's visit to Moses. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. Earlier, Moses had sent his wife Zipporah and his two sons back to Jethro, who had taken them in. Moses' first son was named Gershom, for Moses had said when the boy was born, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. His second son was named Eliezer, for Moses had said, The God of my ancestors was my helper. He rescued me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, now came to visit Moses in the wilderness. He brought Moses' wife and two sons with him, and they arrived while Moses and the people were camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent a message to Moses saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and your two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. They asked about each other's welfare and then went into Moses' tent. Moses told his father-in-law everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also told about all the hardships they had experienced along the way and how the Lord had rescued his people from all their troubles. Jethro was delighted when he heard about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel as he rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro said, for he has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Yes, he has rescued Israel from the powerful hand of Egypt. I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods because he has rescued his people from the oppression of the proud Egyptians. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, Aaron and all the elders of Israel came out and joined him in the sacrificial meal in God's presence. So pause there and reflect on who Jethro is and his character. In the next section, Jethro is about to give Moses advice. 
But why was it important that we had this first section before Jethro gave his advice? What did it set up and how does it show us that Jethro is someone who trusts and believes in the Lord? The next section is Jethro's wise advice. The next day, Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. They waited before him from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, What are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do all this alone, while everyone stands around you from morning till evening? Moses replied, Because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me, and I am the one who settles the case between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. This is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me and let me give you a word of advice and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to him. Teach them God's decrees and give them his instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes but have them bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures and all these people will go home in peace. So pause there and reflect on Jethro's advice. How is Jethro's advice and his new plan for how Moses will lead the people better than the way Moses had previously been leading his people. Do you think that God used Jethro to show Moses this better way? Verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,000, 150, and 10. These men were always available to solve the people's common disputes. They brought the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller matters themselves. Soon after this, Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, who returned to his own land. So pause there and make a prediction. Do you think that the community of the Israelites as a whole will have more peace under this new system? How had they been handling disputes before? When the Israelites complained, what usually happened? And then in this new system, what do you think is going to happen? And how do you think it's going to take care of some of that complaining and constant conflict between God, Moses, and the Israelites? Now the next two chapters, Exodus 19 and 20, go hand in hand. Chapter 19 is all about preparation and then chapter 20 is when God hands down the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. So as we read through Exodus 19, be thinking about how God is preparing the Israelites for this covenant, for this list of his commandments from heaven. Exodus 19, the Lord reveals himself at Sinai. 
Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the people on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, Go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow, and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day, for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people. Be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up on the mountain. So pause there and reflect on those rules God is giving Moses and the Israelites about what to do when God shows his presence on Mount Sinai. Does God sound weak or powerful? Why is it so important that they prepare themselves to be in the Lord's presence? Verse 14 So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship, and they washed their clothes. He told them, Get ready for the third day, and until then, abstain from having sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. So pause there and just imagine that picture in your head. Is it a little terrifying? 
How is it displaying God's power? And then what about Moses? He's asked to climb the mountain. Do you think he's scared or do you think he's ready to be in the presence of the Lord and hear what the Lord has to say? How do you think the Israelites are feeling in this moment? We know that God is giving the Israelites and Moses an important message. How does this description and God's power displayed show us exactly how important this message is going to be? Verse 21, Then the Lord told Moses, Go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord, or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near to the Lord must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. But Lord, Moses protested, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me, mark off a boundary all around the mountain to set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priests or the people break through to approach the Lord, or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. So that's the end of chapter 19, and I want you to reflect on how important it is to God that the people are prepared. This is a very intense scene. We have a lot going on. How do you think the Israelites will respond? What do you think God is preparing them for, and what do you think he's going to say? Well, we are going to find out right now as we start Exodus 20, Ten Commandments for the Covenant Community. You may have heard these commandments before. You may have heard them many times. They are very important to the Christian doctrine and to our relationship with God. As we read through these, think about why God gave each specific command. What do you think his motivations were? As we read through each specific commandment, consider what God is trying to protect his people from. Exodus 20 verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. 
This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigner living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So pause and reflect on these first four commandments. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make idols. You must not take the Lord's name in vain. And you must remember the Sabbath. Did these commandments have to do with human relationships? Or did these commandments have to do with man's relationship with God? Why is it important that we understand our relationship to God? Why is it important that we revere God? Why is it important that we have no other gods but the one true God? Why is it important that we do not make idols? What idols do you see in your life right now? What things in your life have you made gods? Why are we not allowed to misuse the name of God? Why is the Sabbath important to God and why must we keep it holy? Let's now read through the next six commandments which have to do with human relationships. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother, then you will live a long full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So let's pause and reflect on those commandments. Why does God say you must honor your father and mother? Why does God say you must not murder? Why does God say you must not commit adultery? Why does God say you must not steal? Why does God say you must not bear false witness? Don't tell lies about your neighbor. Why does God say you must not covet or envy what your neighbor has? And ask yourself, who is my neighbor? Is it the people who live next door to me or is it everyone in the world I come in contact with? When we get to the New Testament, Jesus will discuss these commandments in his Sermon on the Mount. We haven't gotten there yet, but we will. And he puts into perspective these laws and why they are so important. And Jesus shows us how in the Sermon on the Mount, even if we think we haven't committed these sins, we have. None of us is safe or free from sin outside of Jesus Christ. You know, we know that that story is coming. This is the history building up to it. That's why Jesus' coming is so important as we read through these laws and these regulations and everything that the Israelites had to do. You soon realize that it's not possible to be perfect. It's not possible to keep all of these laws and regulations on our own. 
That's why God will soon come to create a new covenant, a better covenant in Christ. But right now we're getting the foundation and building the legwork until that day comes. Verse 18. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. So pause there and think about what the Israelites just said. What have they finally come to realize? How has their relationship to God changed because they understand and know him better? Verse 20. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. The final section is proper use of altars. And the Lord said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. You saw for yourselves that I spoke to you from heaven. Remember, you must not make any idols of silver or gold to rival me. Build me an altar made of earth and offer your sacrifices to me, your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered and I will come to you and bless you. If you use stones to build my altar, use only natural, uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool, for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. And do not approach my altar by going up steps. If you do, someone might look up under your clothing and see your nakedness. So that is the end of our section today, Exodus 16-20. through This is just the beginning of the covenant God is making with Israel. There will be more regulations that he will lay out, but that is for next time. As we end today, reflect on who God is and what we're learning about God as we continue on in this journey. Reflect on his power, but also reflect on his mercy and grace. How he has provided for the Israelites even when they complain against him. How does God show his love and provision to the Israelites? I hope you enjoyed listening today. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you who listens. And I hope, as always, that God speaks through his word and that you become closer to him and have a better understanding of him each time you listen. If you want to reach out, I have an email address, BibleBeginningToEnd at gmail.com. That's in the show notes or the description of the video. I would love to hear from you and hear what you think of the show or hear suggestions or anything like that. But as always, thank you for listening and I will talk to you in the next one. Hello and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End, where we are reading through the scriptures together from Genesis to Revelation. As always, I will be reading from the New Living Translation, and I will be giving very little commentary, but will be asking questions for you to think on and meditate on along the way. Last time, we finished up Exodus 16-20, through where we saw God give the Israelites the Ten Commandments. This week, we're going to see God confirm His covenant with Israel, And we're going to see him give even more laws for the Israelites to follow. 
Some of the themes we'll be thinking on as we read together are justice, obedience, and God's authority. And as we read through these regulations, I want you to think about why is God giving Israel these regulations? Why are these laws important? And then if you know the New Testament and what's to come, how have these things changed or been fulfilled by Jesus' sacrifice? Exodus 21, the fair treatment of slaves. These are the regulations you must present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years as the men are. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be bought back again. But he is not allowed to sell her to foreigners, since he is the one who broke the contract with her. But if the slave's owner arranges for her to marry his son, he may no longer treat her as a slave, but as a daughter. If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of his first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. So you might want to take some time to reflect on these regulations. You might be asking yourself, wait, the Israelites were just freed from slavery, but they have slaves themselves? How does that make sense? But really read over these regulations and these laws, and even do some research if you want to, and ask yourself, are these laws life-affirming? Are they looking at these people as human beings or as property? These might be things you need to pray on and reconcile in your own spirit. The next section is cases of personal injury. Verse 12. Anyone who assaults and kills another person must be put to death. But if it was simply an accident permitted by God, I will appoint a place of refuge where the slayer can run for safety. However, if someone deliberately kills another person, then the slayer must be dragged even from my altar and be put to death. Anyone who strikes father or mother must be put to death. Kidnappers must be put to death, whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. Anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Now suppose two men quarrel, and one hits the other with a stone or fist, and the injured person does not die but is confined to bed. If he is later able to walk outside again even with a crutch, the assailant will not be punished but must compensate his victim for lost wages and provide for his full recovery. If a man beats his male or female slave with a club and a slave dies as a result, the owner must be punished. But if the slave recovers within a day or two, then the owner shall not be punished, since the slave is his property. Now suppose two men are fighting, and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, 
The man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands and the judges approve. But if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. So pause there. That's a very famous verse in scripture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand. If you know the story of Jesus, because we read the Old Testament with the understanding that Jesus came to fulfill the covenant and to change everything, how does Jesus's sacrifice change this thinking of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand? And also reflect on these regulations as we continue reading them and think, my goodness, could I follow all of these things and not fail? Are you starting to see the need for a savior in the future? Verse 26, if a man hits his male or female slave in the eye and the eye is blinded, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And if a man knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox must be stoned and its flesh may not be eaten. In such a case, however, the owner will not be held liable. But suppose the ox had a reputation for goring and the owner had been informed but failed to keep it under control. If the ox then kills someone, it must be stoned and the owner must also be put to death. However, the dead person's relatives may accept payment to compensate for the loss of life. The owner of the ox may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. The same regulation applies if the ox gores a boy or a girl. But if the ox gores a slave, either male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave's owner 30 silver coins and the ox must be stoned. Suppose someone digs or uncovers a pit and fails to cover it, and then an ox or a donkey falls into it. The owner of the pit must pay full compensation to the owner of the animal, but then he gets to keep the dead animal. If someone's ox injures a neighbor's ox and the injured ox dies, then the two owners must sell the live ox and divide the price equally between them. They must also divide the dead animal. But if the ox had a reputation for goring yet its owner failed to keep it under control, he must pay full compensation, a live ox for the dead one, but he may keep the dead ox. So let's pause because these are very interesting regulations that may not even make sense to us in modern society. But reflect on them and see if you see any patterns among these regulations. How are they life-affirming? How are they displaying God's desire for the sanctity of life and justice if people's lives are put in harm's way? Exodus 22, Protection of Property If someone steals an ox or sheep and then kills or sells it, the thief must pay back five oxen for each ox stolen and four sheep for each sheep stolen. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder, but if it happens in daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. A thief who is caught must pay in full, for everything he stole. If he cannot pay, he must be sold as a slave to pay for his theft. 
If someone steals an ox or a donkey or a sheep and it is found in the thief's possession, then the thief must pay double the value of the stolen animal. If an animal is grazing in a field or vineyard and the owner lets it stray into someone else's field to graze, then the animal's owner must pay compensation from the best of his own grain or grapes. If you are burning thorn bushes and the fire gets out of control and spreads into another person's field, destroying the sheaves or the uncut grain or the whole crop, the one who started the fire must pay for the lost crop. So pause here as we continue reading these regulations. What is the theme here? How is this showing God's desire for people to take personal responsibility for integrity? Verse 7. Suppose someone leaves money or goods with a neighbor for safekeeping, and they are stolen from the neighbor's house. If the thief is caught, the compensation is double the value of what was stolen. But if the thief is not caught, the neighbor must appear before God, who will determine if he stole the property. Suppose there is a dispute between two people who both claim to own a particular ox, donkey, sheep, article of clothing, or any lost property. Both parties must come before God, and the person whom God declares guilty must pay double compensation to the other. Now suppose someone leaves a donkey, ox, sheep, or any other animal with a neighbor for safekeeping, but it dies or is injured or is taken away, and no one sees what happened. The neighbor must then take an oath in the presence of the Lord. If the Lord confirms that the neighbor did not steal the property, the owner must accept the verdict, and no payment will be required. But... If the animal was indeed stolen, the guilty person must pay compensation to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the remains of the carcass must be shown as evidence and no compensation will be required. If someone borrows an animal from a neighbor and it is injured or dies when the owner is absent, the person who borrowed it must pay full compensation. But if the owner was present, no compensation is required. And no compensation is required if the animal was rented, for this loss is covered by the rental fee. The next section is social responsibility. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to anyone and has sex with her, he must pay the customary bride price and marry her. But if her father refuses to let him marry her, the man must still pay him an amount equal to the bride price of a virgin. You must not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal must certainly be put to death. Anyone who sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourself were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will blaze against you and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a moneylender would. If you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, then I will hear, for I am merciful. You must not dishonor God or curse any of your rulers. You must not hold anything back when you give me offerings from your crops and your wine. You must give me your firstborn sons. You must also give me the firstborn of your cattle, sheep, and goats. But leave the newborn animals with its mother for seven days, then give it to me on the eighth day. You must be my holy people. 
Therefore do not eat any animal that has been torn up and killed by wild animals. Throw it to the dogs. So pause and reflect on this section and ask yourself, how is God sticking up for the least of these and the ones who are often marginalized in the community? Exodus 23 is a call for justice. You must not pass along false rumors. You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand. You must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, do not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice. And do not slant your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that is strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. In a lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. Be sure never to charge anyone falsely with evil. Never sentence an innocent or blameless person to death. For I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. Take no bribes. For a bribe makes you ignore something that you clearly see. A bribe makes even a righteous person twist the truth. You must not oppress foreigners. You know what it's like to be a foreigner, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Pause there and reflect on that statement, because that's the second time God has said, treat foreigners well, because you were once foreigners in a foreign land. Now that we know and we've read this history of Exodus, think back to what it was like for the Israelites when they were trapped in slavery in Egypt. What is God appealing to here? And then as a personal question, reflect on things God has delivered you from. And how do those experiences shape us? Why is it important to remember where we've come from? How does that relate to compassion and empathy? Verse 10. Plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day you must stop working. This gives your ox and your donkey a chance to rest. It also allows your slaves and the foreigners living among you to be refreshed. Pay close attention to all my instructions. You must not call on the name of any other gods. Do not even speak their names. The next section is three annual festivals. Each year you must celebrate three festivals in my honor. First celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast, just as I commanded you. Celebrate this festival annually at the appointed time in early spring in the month of Abib, for that is the anniversary of of your departure from Egypt. No one may appear before me without an offering. Second, celebrate the festival of harvest when you bring me the first crops of your harvest. Finally, celebrate the festival of the final harvest at the end of the harvest season when you have harvested all the crops from your fields. At these three times each year, every man in Israel must appear before the sovereign, the Lord. You must not offer the blood of my sacrificial offerings together with any baked goods containing yeast, and do not leave the fat from the festival offerings until the next morning. As you harvest your crops, 
Bring the very best of the first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. You must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. The next section is a promise of the Lord's presence. See, I am sending an angel before you to protect you on your journey and lead you safely to the place I have prepared for you. Pay close attention to him and obey his instructions. Do not rebel against him, for he is my representative, and he will not forgive your rebellion. But if you are careful to obey him, following all my instructions, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, and I will oppose those who oppose you. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, so you may live there, and I will destroy them completely. You must not worship the gods of these nations or serve them in any way or imitate their evil practices. Instead, you must utterly destroy them and smash their sacred pillars. You must serve only the Lord your God. If you do, I will bless you with food and water, and I will protect you from illness. There will be no miscarriages or infertility in your land, and I will give you long, full lives. So pause there and reflect on God sending an angel before them. What kind of comfort does this offer? How do you think the Israelites feel about this? Do you think it would make them feel more powerful as they go on this journey? Do you think it gives them a sense of security and protection as they're going out on this journey? Verse 27, I will send my terror ahead of you and create panic among all the people whose lands you invade. I will make all your enemies turn and run. I will send terror ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. I will drive them out a little at a time until your population has increased enough to take possession of the land. And I will fix your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the eastern wilderness to the Euphrates River. I will hand over to you the people now living in the land and you will drive them out ahead of you. Make no treaties with them or their gods. They must not live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me. If you serve their gods, you will be caught in the trap of idolatry. So pause there and think about how many times God has told the Israelites, do not have any other gods before me. Why do you think he repeats that commandment over and over again? Do you think that the Israelites will keep that command? How do you think the Israelites will respond to this covenant God is making? Well, we will find out in Exodus 24, Israel accepts the Lord's covenant. Then the Lord instructed Moses, Come up here to me and bring along Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders. All of you must worship from a distance. Only Moses is allowed to come near to the Lord. The others must not come near, and none of the other people are allowed to climb up the mountain with him. Then Moses went down to the people and repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him. All the people answered with one voice, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. Then Moses carefully wrote down all the Lord's instructions. Early the next morning, Moses got up and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He also set up twelve pillars, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Then he sent some of the young Israelite men to present burnt offerings and to sacrifice bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses drained half the blood from these animals into basins. The other half he splattered against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it over the people, declaring, Look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. So pause there and ask yourself, why is Moses sprinkling blood on the Israelites? What does blood symbolize? What does sacrifice symbolize? Verse 9, Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Pause and think about that right then. To be in the presence of God the most powerful, but to not be destroyed. How is it that we will be able to be in God's presence one day and not be destroyed? Verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain. Stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. Moses told the elders, Stay here and wait for us until we come back. Aaron and her are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I'm gone, consult with them. Then Moses climbed up the mountain, and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The rest of Exodus explores the tabernacle. So we'll be talking about that a lot starting in chapter 25 and going all the way through till the end of Exodus. So I'm actually going to stop at 24 because I think that's a good place to stop. It's like a transitional period in Exodus. So I'm going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger because Moses is just walking straight into God's presence. And picking up next week, we're going to find out what God has to say to Moses. And we're going to learn more about God's design for humanity and for his people. So I hope you enjoyed this section today. It was a little different. It was a lot of regulations and rules, but each of these parts of scripture are being used as pieces in a puzzle that when you look at scripture as a whole, makes sense for the entire story of God and Christ and the fulfillment of an old covenant that we're seeing right now in the Old Testament and then looking towards the future 
to the new covenant that Christ will fulfill in the New Testament. So you might think, oh, these regulations that we don't have to follow now, why do I need to read this? Well, it shows us our history. It shows us where we're coming from. And it also reminds us why we needed Christ, why we needed grace. Because do you think that the Israelites are actually going to be able to uphold their end of the covenant and stay firm and true to God? We will see as time goes on. So thank you for listening. If you want to reach out to the show, I have an email address. It's BibleBeginningToEnd at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, hear any thoughts about the show or just your experiences reading scripture. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Hello, and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End, where we are reading through the scriptures together from Genesis to Revelation. I'm glad you're joining us today as we continue on in Exodus. Last time, we stopped with Exodus 24, and we had a bit of a cliffhanger because we saw, as you remember, Moses going into God's presence. It said Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and we want to know What was God telling Moses? Israel has just accepted the Lord's covenant, and God has a message and a plan for Moses. So what is going to happen next? A lot of what we're reading today is going to be about the tabernacle. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay, because we'll figure it out together as we read and let the scriptures speak for themselves. So here we go with Exodus 25 Offerings for the Tabernacle The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat hair for cloth, tanned ram skins and fine goat skin leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stones and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. So pause there and ask yourself and be thinking as God is going to be giving these regulations for how the tabernacle must be built. Why do you think God has to be so specific? Why do you think it's important that Moses follow God's commands to the letter? And then also reflect, I just asked the question, what is a tabernacle? What did God just say? Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Think about what that means so God can live among them. How important is the tabernacle? How important is God's dwelling place? And understanding what the tabernacle is, does that change your answer about why you might think God has such specific guidelines for building it? 
The next section is plans for the Ark of the Covenant. Have the people make an Ark of Acacia wood, a sacred chest 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings. Never remove them. When the ark is finished, place inside it the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give you. Then make the ark's cover the place of atonement from pure gold. It must be 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover with their wings spread above it. They will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. From there I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. The next section is plans for the table. Then make a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and run a gold molding around the edge. Decorate it with a 3-inch border all around and run a gold molding along the border. Make four gold rings for the table and attach them at the four corners next to the four legs. Attach the rings near the border to hold the poles that are used to carry the table. Make these poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Make special containers of pure gold for the table. Bowls, ladles, pitchers, and jars to be used in pouring out liquid offerings. Place the bread of the presence on the table to remain before me at all times. The next section is plans for the lampstand. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece, the base, center stem, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the center stem, three on each side. Each of the six branches will have three lamp cups, shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. Craft the center stem of the lampstand with four lamp cups, shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. There will also be an almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extend from the center stem. The almond buds and branches must all be of one piece with the center stem, and they must be hammered from pure gold. Then make the seven lamps for the lampstand and set them so they reflect their light forward. The lamp snuffers and trays must also be made of pure gold. You will need 75 pounds of pure gold for the lampstand and its accessories. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. 
So pause there at the end of Exodus 25 as we're going into Exodus 26. And throughout this chapter, we are going to see a lot of plans for the tabernacle as a whole and for all the pieces of the tabernacle. And it's a lot of regulations and specific plans. And it might be difficult to follow. And one thing you could do is maybe as you're listening, draw a diagram of what all of this is supposed to look like. And reflect as we go into Exodus 26, reflect on how seriously God is taking this. And ask yourself why. Why these specific rules? Why these specific materials? Why these specific plans for God's dwelling place among the Israelites? So here we go. Exodus 26, plans for the tabernacle. Make the tabernacle from ten curtains of finely woven linen. Decorate the curtains with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. These ten curtains must all be exactly the same size, 42 feet long and 6 feet wide. Join five of these curtains together to make one long curtain, then join the other five into a second long curtain. Put loops of blue yarn along the edge of the last curtain in each set. The 50 loops along the edge of one curtain are to match the 50 loops along the edge of the other curtain. Then make 50 gold clasps and fasten the long curtains together with the clasps. In this way, the tabernacle will be made of one continuous piece. Pause there. Why is it important? Why do you think it's important that the curtain be made of one continuous piece of fabric? Verse 7. Make eleven curtains of goat hair cloth to serve as a tent covering for the tabernacle. These eleven curtains must all be exactly the same size, 45 feet long and 6 feet wide. Join five of these curtains together to make one long curtain, and join the other six into a second long curtain. Allow three feet of material from the second set of curtains to hang over the front of the sacred tent. Make fifty loops for one edge of each large curtain. Then make fifty bronze clasps and fasten the loops of the long curtains with the clasps. In this way, the tent covering will be made of one continuous piece. The remaining three feet of this tent covering will be left to hang over the back of the tabernacle. Allow 18 inches of remaining material to hang down over each side so the tabernacle is completely covered. Complete the tent covering with a protective layer of tanned ram skins and a layer of fine goatskin leather. So pause there. Why do you think it's important for the tabernacle to be completely covered? What is inside the tabernacle that needs to be contained? Verse 15. For the framework of the tabernacle, construct frames of acacia wood. Each frame must be 15 feet high and 27 inches wide, with two pegs under each frame. Make all the frames identical. Make 20 of these frames to support the curtains on the south side of the tabernacle. Also, make 40 silver bases, two bases under each frame, with the pegs fitting securely into the bases. For the north side of the tabernacle, make another 20 frames. With their 40 silver bases, two bases under each frame. Make six frames for the rear, 
the west side of the tabernacle, along with two additional frames to reinforce the rear corners of the tabernacle. These corner frames will be matched at the bottom and firmly attached at the top with a single ring, forming a single corner unit. Make both of these corner units the same way, so there will be eight frames at the rear of the tabernacle set in 16 silver bases, two bases under each frame. Make crossbars of acacia wood to link the frames, five crossbars for the north side of the tabernacle, and five for the south side. Also make five crossbars for the rear of the tabernacle, which will face west. The middle crossbar, attached halfway up the frames, will run all the way from one end of the tabernacle to the other. Overlay the frames with gold, and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Overlay the crossbars with gold as well. So pause there and reflect on how much gold is being used in the tabernacle. Why do you think gold is the element of choice, the material of choice for so many pieces of the tabernacle? Verse 30. Set up this tabernacle according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. For the inside of the tabernacle, make a special curtain of finely woven linen. Decorate it with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. Hang this curtain on gold hooks attached to four posts of acacia wood. Overlay the posts with gold and set them in four silver bases. Hang the inner curtain from clasps and put the Ark of the Covenant in the room behind it. This curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. So pause there and reflect on the two rooms in the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place. What does it mean to be holy? Why are the rooms in the tabernacle considered holy? And then what do you think the differences are between the holy place and the most holy place? Verse 34. Then put the ark's cover, the place of atonement, on top of the ark of the covenant inside the most holy place. Place the table outside the inner curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and place the lampstand across the room on the south side. Make another curtain for the entrance to the sacred tent. Make it of finely woven linen and embroider it with exquisite designs, using blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Craft five posts from acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and hang the curtain from them with gold hooks. Cast five bronze bases for the posts. So that was the end of chapter 26, and now we're going into chapter 27. We're transitioning from plans for the tabernacle, the actual structure itself, to plans for the area surrounding the tabernacle. So here we go with Exodus 27, plans for the altar of burnt offering. Using acacia wood, construct a square altar seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. Make horns for each of its four corners so that the horns and altar are all one piece. Overlay the altar with bronze. Make ash buckets, shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans all of bronze. Make a bronze grating for it and attach four bronze rings at its four corners. Install the grating halfway down the side of the altar under the ledge. For carrying the altar, make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with bronze 
Insert the poles through the rings on the two sides of the altar. The altar must be hollow, made from planks. Build it just as you were shown on the mountain. The next section is plans for the courtyard. Then make the courtyard for the tabernacle enclosed with curtains made of finely woven linen. On the south side, make the curtains 150 feet long. They will be held up by 20 posts set securely in 20 bronze bases. Hang the curtain with silver hooks and rings. Make the curtains the same on the north side. 150 feet of curtains held up by 20 posts set securely in bronze bases. Hang the curtains with silver hooks and rings. The curtains on the west end of the courtyard will be 75 feet long, supported by 10 posts set into 10 bases. The east end of the courtyard, the front, will also be 75 feet long. The courtyard entrance will be on the east end, flanked by two curtains. The curtain on the right side will be 22 and a half feet long, supported by three posts set into three bases. The curtain on the left side will also be 22 and a half feet long, supported by three posts set into three bases. For the entrance to the courtyard, make a curtain that is 30 feet long. Make it from finely woven linen and decorate it with beautiful embroidery in blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Support it with four posts, each securely set in its own base. All the posts around the courtyard must have silver rings and hooks and bronze bases. So the entire courtyard will be 150 feet long and 75 feet wide with curtain walls 7.5 feet high. Made from finely woven linen, the base for the posts will be made of bronze. All the articles used in the rituals of the tabernacle, including all the tent pegs used to support the tabernacle and the courtyard curtains, must be made of bronze. So pause there and ask yourself, why does the tabernacle even need a courtyard? Who do you think is allowed to actually go into the tabernacle itself? And if there are only a select number of people who are able to actually enter the tabernacle, why might there need to be a courtyard with an altar for sacrifices? The next section is light for the tabernacle. Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to keep the lamps burning continually. The lampstand will stand in the tabernacle in front of the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron and his sons must keep the lamps burning in the Lord's presence all night. This is a permanent law for the people of Israel, and it must be observed from generation to generation. So that was the end of Exodus 27, and now we're going to go into Exodus 28. And as we do, as we continue reading these sections, which are a lot of, like I said, rules and regulations for the Israelites and their community, I want you to be thinking about worship and community with God and dwelling with God and having relationship with God. As we're reading through these sections, how have things changed? And I don't mean how have things changed because we live in a modern society. I mean, how have things changed from Exodus to the coming of Christ? If you know the story of Christ already. You know, all of this is the foundation, the groundwork 
before Christ comes. But all of this reminds us of why we needed Christ so desperately. Because I don't know how you guys out there feel about reading through these laws and regulations and to-do lists and plans and everything. I don't know. Some of you may love it. Some of you may find it exhausting. It's okay if these are difficult parts of scripture to get through. But sometimes it's like the expression that you can't know joy unless you've known pain. Not that this was pain, but we can't really appreciate who Jesus is and what he did for us and what he continues to do for us if we can't recognize that we needed a savior in the first place. So as we're reading through these sections, ask yourself, why was the coming of Christ, why was Christ's sacrifice so much better than going through all of these rules and regulations in the Old Testament? Exodus 28, Clothing for Priests Call for your brother Aaron and his sons Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Set them apart from the rest of the people of Israel, so they may minister to me and be my priests. Okay, so pause right there. Why did God need priests? Why did he need to set people apart from everyone else? Verse 2. Make sacred garments for Aaron that are glorious and beautiful. Instruct all the skilled craftsmen whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. Have them make garments for Aaron that will distinguish him as a priest set apart from my service. These are the garments they are to make a chest piece, an ephod, a robe, a patterned tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons to wear when they serve me as priests. So give them fine linen cloth, gold thread, and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. So pause there before we go into the designs and all the specifics about what these garments will look like. I want you to reflect on what we learn about worship in this section and how we should posture ourselves before God. Why is God taking his priest's clothing so seriously? We know God is holy. How should God's holiness affect the way we approach him and speak to him and interact with him? The next section is designs of the ephod. The craftsman must make the ephod of finely woven linen and skillfully embroider it with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. It will consist of two pieces, front and back, joined at the shoulders with two shoulder pieces. The decorative sash will be made of the same materials, finely woven linen embroidered with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the tribes of Israel. Six names will be on each stone, arranged in the order of the births of the original sons of Israel. Engrave these names on the two stones in the same way a jeweler engraves a seal. Then, mount the stones in the setting of gold filigree. Fasten the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a reminder that Aaron represents the people of Israel. Aaron will carry these names on his shoulders as a constant reminder whenever he goes before the Lord. Make the settings of gold filigree. 
then braid two cords of pure gold and attach them to the filigree settings on the shoulders of the ephod. Design of the chess piece. Then, with great skill and care, make a chess piece to be worn for seeking a decision from God. Make it to match the ephod, using finely woven linen embroidered with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Make the chess piece of a single piece of cloth folded to form a pouch nine inches square. Mount four rows of gemstones on it. The first row will contain a red carnelian, a pale green peridot, and an emerald. The second row will contain a turquoise, a blue lapis lazuli, and a white moonstone. The third row will contain an orange jacinth, an agate, and a purple amethyst. The fourth row will contain a blue-green barrel, an onyx, and a green jasper. All these stones will be set in gold filigree. Each stone will represent one of the twelve sons of Israel, and the name of that tribe will be engraved on it like a seal. To attach the chess piece to the ephod, make braided cords of pure gold thread. Then make two gold rings and attach them to the top corners of the chess piece. Tie the two gold cords to the two rings on the chess piece. Tie the other ends of the cords to the gold settings on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then, make two more gold rings and attach them to the inside edges of the chess pieces next to the ephod. And make two more gold rings and attach them to the front of the ephod, below the shoulder pieces, just above the knot where the decorative sash is fastened to the ephod. Then, attach the bottom rings of the chess piece to the rings on the ephod with blue cords. This will hold the chess piece securely to the ephod above the decorative sash. In this way, Aaron will carry the names of the tribes of Israel on the sacred chess piece over his heart when he goes into the holy place. This will be a continual reminder that he represents the people when he comes before the Lord. Insert the Urim and Thummim into the sacred chess piece so they will be carried over Aaron's heart when he goes into the Lord's presence. In this way, Aaron will always carry over his heart the objects used to determine the Lord's will for his people whenever he goes before the Lord. The next section is additional clothing for the priests. Make the robe that is worn with the ephod from a single piece of blue cloth, with an opening for Aaron's head in the middle of it. Reinforce the opening with a woven collar so it will not tear. Make pomegranates out of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and attach them to the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and pomegranates are to alternate all around the hem. Aaron will wear this robe whenever he ministers before the Lord, and the bells will tinkle as he goes in and out of the Lord's presence in the holy place. If he wears it, he will not die. So pause there because it says if he wears it, he will not die. So what does that infer? That infers that if he doesn't wear it, he will die. So why would Aaron die if he went into the holy place without his robes on? What does that tell us about how powerful God's presence is? Verse 36. Next, make a medallion of pure gold and engrave it like a seal with these words, Holy to the Lord. Attach the medallion with a blue cord to the front of Aaron's turban, where it must remain. Aaron must wear it on his forehead so he may take on himself any guilt of the people of Israel 
when they consecrate their sacred offerings. He must always wear it on his forehead so the Lord will accept the people. Weave Aaron's patterned tunic from fine linen cloth. Fasten the turban from this linen as well. Also make a sash and decorate it with colorful embroidery. For Aaron's sons make tunics, sashes, and special head coverings that are glorious and beautiful. Clothe your brother Aaron and his sons with these garments, and then anoint and ordain them, consecrate them, so they can serve as my priests. Also make linen undergarments for them, to be worn next to their bodies, reaching from their hips to their thighs. These must be worn whenever Aaron and his sons enter the tabernacle or approach the altar in the holy place to perform their priestly duties. Then they will not incur guilt and die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and all his descendants after him. Okay, that was the end of Exodus 28, and the final chapter we're going to read today is Exodus 29 because that is going to kind of end the section on priests and their rituals and what they are supposed to do for the people of Israel and for God. So we just talked about the priests' clothing, but now the question is, well, what do the priests do? How are they ordained or dedicated to the Lord? How are they supposed to perform all of these duties? Well, God is going to lay out all of those details in this chapter. So Exodus 29, Dedication of the Priests. This is the ceremony you must follow when you consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams with no defects. Then using choice wheat flour and no yeast, make loaves of bread, thin cakes mixed with olive oil, and wafers spread with oil. Place them all in a single basket and present them at the entrance of the tabernacle along with the young bull and two rams. Present Aaron and his sons at the entrance of the tabernacle and wash them with water. Dress Aaron in his priestly garments, the tunic, the robe worn with the ephod, the ephod itself, and the chest piece. Then wrap the decorative sash of the ephod around him. Place the turban on his head and fasten the sacred medallion to the turban. Then anoint him by pouring the anointing oil over his head. Next, present his sons and dress them in their tunics. Wrap the sashes around the waists of Aaron and his sons and put their special head coverings on them. Then the right to the priesthood will be theirs by law forever. In this way you will ordain Aaron and his sons. Bring the young bull to the entrance of the tabernacle, where Aaron and his sons will lay their hands on its head. Then slaughter the bull in the Lord's presence at the entrance of the tabernacle. Put some of its blood on the horns of the altar with your finger, and pour out the rest at the base of the altar. Take all the fat around the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat around them, and burn it all on the altar. Then take the rest of the bull, including its hide, meat, and dung, and burn it outside the camp as a sin offering. Next... Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the head of one of the rams, then slaughter the ram and splatter its blood against all sides of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces and wash off the internal organs and the legs. Set them alongside the head and the other pieces of the body. Then burn the entire animal on the altar. This is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a special gift presented to the Lord. Now, Take the other ram, 
and have Aaron and his sons lay their hands on its head, then slaughter it, and apply some of its blood to the right earlobes of Aaron and his sons, and put it on the thumbs of their right hands and the big toes of their right feet. Splatter the rest of the blood against all sides of the altar. Then take some of the blood from the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his sons and on their garments. In this way, they and their garments will be set apart as holy. Since this is the ram for the ordination of Aaron and his sons, take the fat of the ram, including the fat of the broad tail, the fat around the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat around them, along with the right thigh. Then take one round loaf of bread, one thin cake mixed with olive oil, and one wafer from the basket of bread without yeast that was placed in the Lord's presence. Put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons to be lifted up as a special offering to the Lord. Afterward, take the various breads from their hands and burn them on the altar along with the burnt offering. It is a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a special gift for him. Then take the breast of Aaron's ordination ram and lift it up to the Lord's presence as a special offering to him. Then keep it as your own portion. Set aside the portions of the ordination ram that belong to Aaron and his sons. This includes the breast and the thigh that were lifted up before the Lord as a special offering. In the future, Whenever the people of Israel lift up a peace offering, a portion of it must be set aside for Aaron and his descendants. This is the permanent right, and it is a sacred offering from the Israelites to the Lord. Aaron's sacred garments must be preserved for his descendants who secede him, and they will wear them when they are anointed and ordained. The descendants who secede him as high priest will wear these clothes for seven days as he ministers in the tabernacle and the holy place. Take the ram used in the ordination ceremony and boil its meat in a sacred place. Then Aaron and his sons will eat this meat along with the bread in the basket at the tabernacle entrance. They alone may eat the meat and bread used for the purification in the ordination ceremony. No one else may eat them. For these things are set apart and holy. If any of the ordination meat or bread remains until the morning, it must be burned. It may not be eaten, for it is holy. This is how you will ordain Aaron and his sons to their offices, just as I have commanded you. The ordination ceremony will go on for seven days. Each day you must sacrifice a young bull as a sin offering to purify them, making them right with the Lord. Afterward, cleanse the altar by purifying it. Make it holy by anointing it with oil. Purify the altar and consecrate it every day for seven days. After that, the altar will be absolutely holy, and whatever touches it will become holy. So pause there and just think about how incredibly detailed and serious ordaining priests is to God in Exodus. Why is he taking this so seriously? Why... Are there so many rules to follow? Why do you think God is asking this of his people? There's just a little bit left, so verse 38. These are the sacrifices you are to offer regularly on the altar. Each day offer two lambs that are a year old, one in the morning 
and the other in the evening. With one of them, offer two quarts of choice flour mixed with one quart of pure oil of pressed olives. Also, offer one quart of wine as a liquid offering. Offer the other lamb in the evening along with the same offerings of flour and wine as in the morning. It will be a pleasing aroma, a special gift presented to the Lord. These burnt offerings are to be made each day from generation to generation. Offer them in the Lord's presence at the tabernacle entrance. There I will meet with you and speak with you. I will meet the people of Israel there in the place made holy by my glorious presence. Yes, I will consecrate the tabernacle and the altar, and I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will live among the people of Israel and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God. I am the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I could live among them. I am the Lord their God. So that's the end of our section today. And and really reflect on that final passage, that final section where God is giving a little bit of context and, and he's saying, he's telling us how he makes the tabernacle holy. He's reminding us what he did for the Israelites, rescuing them from Egypt. He's opening up and showing his desire to be with the Israelites. And before we end, I just want you to reflect again on what was required of God's people in the Old Testament and Exodus, and how that differs from what our faith looks like under the new covenant after Jesus' sacrifice. How do we dwell with God? How do we interact with God now? And why has that changed? So thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed this section. I know that this is a little bit of a tedious section to get through, but it's important. And and it has meaning to our history. So just keep at it and keep listening and keep reading. And I hope that God keeps speaking through our time together. So thank you for listening. Reach out and email me if you would like to, if you have anything to say or any ideas for the show or suggestions or just comments or just stories. I would love to hear from you. And as always, I'll talk to you in the next one.